I think we are live. Uh, those are tuning in. It's got a little different for us today. This is uh, the Bible Quest Tuesday edition. I want to welcome everyone. Uh, this is Bible Quest where we talk with you about the Bible and its relevance for today, every Tuesday at two. I'm your host, Justin Dobbs. Uh, normally, Jonathan Sadler would be hosting, but we're making some changes here. Jonathan's had to make some changes. And so this is a little new for us today. We've got a new panelist. I'll introduce our panel for today's discussion in just a moment. But first, let me invite you to interact with us live. Uh, you can use the live chat on YouTube. Uh, we'll be watching that throughout today's discussion. So if you have any other questions or comments about, uh, about today's Bible study, then we invite you to, uh, to post that there. We'll keep an eye on that. Uh, or if you just have some other spiritually related Bible uh, related topic, then you can contact us through the chat or uh, visit our website at BibleQuest.tv. Uh, we're excited to hear from you. We want to talk about uh, your concerns and your questions and your journey to know the Lord and His Word. Uh, today we've got with us uh, Abe Kane. Abe, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Justin. <laughs> good, good. Glad to see you. Glad you're with us. Uh, Abe's just made a move to Ohio, uh, working with a church there in, in Youngstown. Is that right? Yes. All yes, right. Yes. And uh, and Abe thought this was just a private Bible study, but he's uh, <laughs> learning this is uh, going to be broadcast. So uh, excited Abe is with us. Um, and then Scott Smelter is with us. How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing all right. Good, good, good. Um, so we'll we'll just continue with our study today. We've been looking at the Gospel of Mark, uh, and the Gospel of Mark is is really an introduction to the good news about the kingdom, good news of Jesus. We've come to a section in Mark 13 uh, where Jesus has completed a week's worth of, uh, I don't know, a week's worth of examination by the leaders of the Jews. And they've been trying to trap him and um, trying to make him look bad in front of the people. Uh, but here he is, I think it's early as Mark chapter 11 when he first comes into jerusalem he enters the temple cleanses the temple there's uh, a moment where he curses a fig tree and that seems to be uh picturesque uh it's a pictorial uh, moment for him to talk about going into jerusalem and not finding good fruit so here we come to mark 13 where he has been telling the disciples to beware of the scribes uh, beware of the leaders who look good on the outside uh, inside uh, they're full of all these evil things. And so now in Mark 13, one through two, the disciples have come to Jesus and they want to point out all the wonderful buildings of the temple. And Scott, you were telling us a little bit about the temple and the temple mount last time. Anything significant we should know about? Yeah, this was just, it just dominated Jerusalem. Uh, today, if you see a picture of Jerusalem, one of the things you'll see that dominates the the area is that that Dome of the Rock, that mosque, that sits where the temple used to sit. Uh, and if you will envision, um, if you envision like say a ping pong table size model, I think it's about 16 football fields, not of the sanctuary itself, but of the platform right. that is used to access the temple and has all these different buildings on. So on the east side, you've got Solomon's porch, which is huge. Uh, if you're thinking of your front porch, you're not even in the ballpark. Uh, there's the royal stole around the south side, and then the steps below that where Gamaliel taught his students. Um, there's the gates on the west side where people would come in 
uh, from the city. And on the north side, you've got the Tower of Antonia where Roman soldiers are, are garrisoned. Uh, and then there's a low wall that Gentiles are not allowed to pass. And then you've got more walls. You've got the court of women. And then you've got the area where Israelite men can come in and bring their sacrifices to the altar. And then you've got the holy place and the holy of holies. And it was, it had been, Herod is rebuilding Zerubbabel's temple. And we know from the Gospel of John that at the time they speak to Jesus about this, construction had been going on for 46 years. Wow. Uh, when I was younger, I thought that meant, oh, it took 46 years to build it. No, 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 that's just 46 years till then. They kept construction going on it until the Jewish war, Roman Jewish war began in 66 AD. Josephus wow. said that the, when the war started, 30 thousand people were laid off that were working on this because these are huge huge uh, stones massive tremendous building and of course it's got to all be done by manual labor yeah so you can imagine the uh the disciples of jesus these kind of country bumpkins from galilee coming coming uh, up to jerusalem and they see these beautiful buildings Right, right. They're just in awe, and um, not that they I mean, haven't seen it before, but you know, right. When I go down and look at you know some of our memorials in Washington, I'm so like, wow, look at that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's impressive. Uh, Jesus is not impressed though. Uh, you get to Mark 13, uh, one through two, and, and Abe, would you like to read that for us? Yeah. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, "Teacher." Behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. I, I just, I, it's hard for me to imagine what this would have been like for the disciples. Uh, for them, it's not just a magnificent building, but this represents all of their relationship with God. This is the center for sacrifice. This is the center for cleansing. Uh, it's about their atonement, their restoration with God. Uh, this was who they were as a people, and Jesus, who is the Messiah, you know, he, he's the one who's supposed to restore the kingdom of Israel to its proper place, and here he says, it's all, all going to go. Um, and then he just seems to to walk out, uh, and so he's on his way out of Jerusalem. In verse 3, they, they get to the Mount of Olives on the east side uh, of the city, uh, opposite the temple, and Peter and James and John and Andrew come and ask him privately, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Uh, what, what begins here, I think is a really challenging section in Mark. Uh, and a lot of people, I think, maybe misunderstand this passage. Yeah. Uh, any, any ideas that we should take with us when we start to look at this passage, whether we're looking at it for the first time or we're trying to teach someone through the gospel of Mark, are there any, uh, markers that you would say help us to make sense of this? There definitely are, but I'd like to back up for just a minute and, and cover a couple of things. Uh, one, emphasizing what you said about what it meant to the Jewish people. So the temple, and this is Herod's temple, which is reconstructed as Rumble's temple. So it's the second temple, which was replacing Solomon's temple. And Solomon's temple replaced the tabernacle. 
what did tabernacle mean? What was the significance of the tabernacle? That's it just was, the, uh, the, the tent, right? It was the dwelling where God lived amongst his people. Yeah, yeah. And so the different tribes are camped around in their tents. And in the middle of their tents, God says, build me a tent and I'm going to dwell with you. Mm -hmm. So this dwelling, it, it represented God dwelling with the people. And that's really, really significant for what this chapter is about. Uh, and eventually, of course, when Judah is destroyed, it's predicted that the temple will be destroyed. The temple is destroyed. And then what is that signal? I'm not with you. You know, you, you've been unfaithful for years and years and years and years, and uh, I'm letting this be destroyed. And sometimes in the prophets, you'll see references to people who had been putting their faith in the temple. Well, we've got the temple. And then when they're able to rebuild it, that's an important thing. But this is the generation that is about to kill the Messiah. Right. Are they going to be allowed to still trust in this structure? Go ahead, Justin. Well, it, it, and it seems like Jesus had already been telling some parables about this sort of thing. Yes. Uh, he'd been, um, by this point, the parable of the tenants back in Mark chapter 12, uh, sending out um, servants to the vineyard to get his fruit. You know, and, and time and time again, they abuse the servants, abuse the messengers and send them back. And so once they kill the son that the master sends in Mark 12, uh, verse six and seven, uh, he's, he's going to come in and destroy those tenants, Mark 12, verse nine, and give the vineyard to others. So it's a very intentional message. Yeah. Jesus knows what's coming. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't as though Jesus was surprised that he was going to be rejected by his own people. Uh, and in fact, this was part of the plan. Uh, his, his victory over death uh, it, it used the rebellion of God's people so that he could accomplish his, his ultimate goal. So this is all is foretold by Jesus, but it, it's also set in motion by Jesus. In fact, he's going to instigate some of these things so that he does end up on the cross. Yeah, exactly. So, so some so, of the misunderstandings that come along, a lot, a lot of people um, look at this chapter and they think, oh, well, this is talking about when the temple is going to be rebuilt, that we're having earthquakes and rumors of wars and wars. And uh, so it's Jesus is about to come back and uh, we're going to get raptured. But the Jews are going to rebuild the temple because it says right here it's going to be torn down. And that would be a little bit like me reading Micah 5 and seeing that a ruler is to come out of Bethlehem mm -hmm. and start checking the hospitals, you know, for what babies are being born in Bethlehem, seeing if any have them have any Davidic, you know, descent. Because I'm missing the point of Micah. That already happened. Right. It already happened. I think one of the, a really good question to ask somebody who believes in the Old Testament, but not the New, uh, would like a, 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 an Orthodox Jew, you read the old law and how much of it is about the sanctuary and the sacrifices and the Levitical priesthood quite a lot. And for 2000 years, they haven't been able to do that. Mm -hmm. 
roughly. And it goes back to the generation that killed the Son of God, who came to tabernacle with his people and build his house, which is not made out of stones. Yeah, it's not in Mark, but but in John 2, Jesus, there's a, a time earlier in his ministry where he does go into the temple, cleanses the temple, and you referenced John 2, 20 earlier. It's taken 46 years to build the temple. Uh, but, but Jesus is, is saying that they're going to destroy this temple, and in three days he'll raise it up. It's like there's been a transfer, uh, should have been a transfer in understanding that God tabernacled in this tent. Uh, he dwelt in his temple, and now he sends his own son so that we see God dwelling amongst men. And the in that temple. With us. Right, right, right. John 1 makes uses that word. He tabernacled with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so now when he's destroyed, he's going to be raised up. And the body of Christ becomes this dwelling place uh, for God amongst his people. So Mark 3 kind of marks this transfer. And it helps us to see that that physical dwelling wasn't really the point. Uh, but it's also for telling these difficult things that, that God's people, the Jews, would have experienced. Uh, so it sounds like some of the stuff we're going to read here in a little bit, uh, he's going to talk about end of the world kind of stuff. Um, I don't think Mark 13, though, is talking about the end of the world. Because they're talking about not one stone left upon another. Uh, it seems like a strange thing to say if this is the end of the world. Well, there won't be any stones left <laughs> on another. Uh, this is just the temple, just Jerusalem. Yeah, let, let's look at three points about those stones upon another real quick. One, this doesn't mean that all of the foundation stones and everything are gone. Because if you've ever seen pictures of Wailing Wall, that goes back. But that's not the side of the sanctuary. It's not like, oh, on the other side of that was the Ark of the Covenant. No, no, that's that's like uh, the, the people at the Wailing Wall are down here. Right. Here's this platform and here's the Dome of the Rock. That's, uh, it, it's just- It's like the, a retaining wall, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and foundational and, and whatever. It's just this big like 16 football field flat area that the other buildings were built on that's still there but the temple itself hmm. uh with the holy place that demolished and, and torn down and secondly notice the language here it says do you see these great buildings there will not be left here one stone upon another these not a later one Mm. he's talking about these. Those were torn down and people read this chapter and they're thinking about a destruction of a temple that hadn't been built yet. Jesus isn't talking about those. He's talking about these. And one clear, clear way to see this is to look at the parallel in Luke 21. Um, In Luke 21, it begins with, uh, in verse 4, as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with goodly stones and offerings, he said, as for these things which you behold, the days will come in which there will not be left here one stone upon another. And then they ask, when will these things be? Now drop down to verse 20. When you see Jerusalem surrounded with armies, know that her desolation is at hand, then let those that are in Judea run to the mountains, and let them that are in the midst depart out. 
And it says in verse 24, they will fall by the edge of the sword. They'll be led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trodden down of the Gentiles. That's what happened in 17 AD. Right. Jump in here. Right. Well, another another marker here, Mark 13, um, verse 26. Some would read this and say, you know, son of man's coming in clouds with great power and glory. Mm -hmm. So I mean, that sounds like end of the world language. But if you keep reading in verse 30, Jesus says, truly, I say to you, this generation, again, the word this, you know, this specific generation will not pass away until all these things take place. It yeah. seems like Jesus is placing a, a stop on the fulfillment of these things. We're not looking for hundreds, thousands of years in the future from Jesus saying these things. But it was that generation that would see the fulfillment of all the things he's talking about, I think, in all of Mark 13. Um, so the, the, the counsel, the instruction he gives us, verse 37, is stay awake. Verse 9, be on your guard. So he's talking to his disciples about uh, an immediate destruction to come on Jerusalem. And we might ask the question, okay, if this is about the destruction of a temple in Jerusalem back in AD 70, we know when that happened, then of what use is a passage like Mark 13 for Christians today? Um, any, any thoughts about that? Hey. Well, I was actually going to ask you guys a question. Uh, All right, we'll get, ask your question, then we'll get back to Justin. All right. <laughs> I was, I was going to ask uh, if there was some way that you could summarize why it, it would have been so impactful and so important for the temple to be destroyed. It was obviously in God's plan, and, and there were prophecies made about this kind of thing. I don't, what, what, what does that bring to the gospel? So it shows, one, a rejection of a rejection of Christ. You can't reject the Son of God and expect to retain this right relationship with God and God dwelling with you. Uh, and it also points to a replacement. Um, in 2 Samuel 7, David had wanted to build the temple, and uh, the answer is no. Your son, 2 Samuel 7, uh, verse 14, and so your son after you will build, he, he will be, I'll establish his kingdom forever. I'll be to him a father, he'll be to me a son and he will build my house. Mm -hmm. Well, that's physically fulfilled to, to a large extent in Solomon, who is David's son and will build that house. But his kingdom is not gonna last forever. It's spiritually fulfilled in Jesus who builds the house of God. And once you've got the house of God made with living stones, you really don't need the old shadow. Hebrews 10, the Old Testament was a shadow of things to come. Colossians 2, don't let somebody hold you responsible now for the Sabbath. That was a shadow of something to come. They were in the Ten Commandments to rest on the seventh day of the week. But then Jesus comes and says, come all ye that labor, and I will give you rest. And in the book of Revelation, uh, in eternal life, we get to rest from our labor. So it's going backwards. Uh, so it's both a pronouncement of judgment and it takes away the security that they often put in kind of like the Pharisee when he prayed, well, I fast twice in the week, so I'm good. There were people that, oh, we got the temple that shows God's with us. 
oh, you don't have the temple. That's right. a message that if, if the temple meant God is with us, what is not having the temple mean? I, I forget which uh, explorer it was. I don't even know if it's true or if it's just a legend, uh, but it's too good of a story to pass up. Uh, I think it was Cortez when he brought his men over to the Americas, uh, he unloaded them and unloaded all their stuff and then he burned the ships. Um, and there's there's nothing that quite motivates you uh, like knowing you can't go home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, and I think in some ways this, I mean, this is definitely judgment on yeah. the Jews for rejecting, um, rejecting the Christ. And it's not that it's judgment on all Jews. It, it, you know, certainly Paul, Peter, I mean, all the apostles were Jews, um, but but the Jews as a whole, as a nation, rejected Jesus. But now they have nothing to go back to. You can't go back to the temple. You can't go back to the old covenant and really practice it. Your only way forward is to seek the Messiah. And, and hopefully that's going to land them at the feet of Jesus. Uh, and so, so I think in some ways, the destruction, while it was a judgment, it was also meant to be a blessing for survivors that they would recognize there's only one way forward here. We, we need the Messiah. So I think it's a great question. What does it do for the gospel? It shows a God who's not going to put up with rebellion for very yeah. long. We need to repent soon, but also a God who's gracious and says, there is a way forward if you'll turn to me. Yeah. Donna, yeah. What do you what do you yeah. think, Abe? Do you, you see anything there? Now you see what I did there? How, how clever I was restructuring Justin's question to, <laughs> to make you guys answer it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, just what did Jesus do when they asked him a question? Yes. <laughs> well done, sir. Well done. All right. Well, how about we, we jump into reading some of this? Um, we'll, we'll try to finish up Mark 13 today. Um, there's a lot of stuff here that has historical um, reference points. I don't know all of them. I think there are some really interesting things to, to it here. Uh, but let's just start reading Mark 13, verse 3 through 13. It says that as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars, rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So Jesus again pointing out, here are signs of the destruction, be on guard about this. Uh, lots of uh, lots of powerful things are going to happen, like wars, nations against nations, kingdom against kingdom, even earthquakes, famines. 
Jesus describes it as a kind of birth pain. You know, it, it's a, anyone who's had uh, labor or had a wife go into labor, you kind of know there are the um, um, the kind of pre-labor pains that they begin to have weeks in advance, and then now it's labor. Uh, now they go into it. And so Jesus is saying, these are just kind of precursors to the judgment that's to come. Um, but in the middle of all that, verses 9 through 13, Jesus describes an opportunity that the disciples are going to have to testify to Jesus, testify of Jesus, and they're going to be guided by the Holy Spirit. There's going to be great consequence in verse 12. They're going to be delivered over even by some of their closest companions. But if they endure through all this, they'll be saved. So coming destruction, but God says, Jesus says, I'm going to be with you through all this. I'm going to give you my spirit. He's going to testify through you. You just need to hold on. So be on guard. Uh, don't fall away. Don't, don't, don't think there's another way out of this mess. Um, I don't know, anything that you two see significant through verse 13. Well, let's talk about some of the things here. This is the stuff that gets people excited. It's the stuff that Jehovah's Witnesses will come up and say, oh, have you, have you noticed that we've had famines and earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars? First off, notice what Jesus said about this in uh, verse, um, I'm missing it. Yeah, verse, verse seven. Mm -hmm. Don't be troubled. And by the way, Name a century where there were not wars and rumors of wars. Do we have wars and rumors of wars now? Yeah. About uh, the 1900s, no wars. Oh, oh yeah, there were some really, really big wars. But the 1800s, oh, yeah, there were wars. How about the 1700s? It's, there's always been wars. And he says, don't be troubled. These things must needs come to pass. The end is not yet. And it says, by the way, I was reading uh, Roman, some Roman history uh, just the other day, and I was either reading in Josephus or Suetonius, and it mentioned a rumors of war. It had that actual expression uh, somewhere in the time of the Caesar, either Julius, which is before Jesus, or during the Caesars of the first century. Um, and then... It said earthquakes. Well, did they have earthquakes back then? Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, by the way, when Jesus died, Matthew says there was an earthquake. Uh, how um, does did the chains fall off Paul and Silas in Philippi? Earthquake. Uh, were there famines? Acts 11. Why were the saints at Antioch? sending money for poor brethren at Jerusalem for the famine. It's famine. Yeah, yeah. And, but there's one here where it says the gospel must first be preached to all nations. So I'm going to play premillennialist advocate here. Um, this can't be that destruction because this temple has to be destroyed after the gospel's been preached all nations and obviously it wasn't preached to all nations before 70 AD. It is helpful to me in thinking uh, that that Jesus is is telling them about all of these 
troubling circumstances that they're going to face. Uh, and it, it doesn't undo the disciples. Uh, you know, what's a Christian supposed to do when their own country is under attack? Uh, we live in, all three of us live in America, uh, but America is not invulnerable. It's not invincible. Uh, one day, unless the Lord comes first, <laughs> America is going to fall. Um, and, and then when the Lord does come, America is not going to matter anyway. <laughs> um, it just, it's just, it's not going to last forever. Uh, but there are plenty of Christians who live in other places where they're, they're constantly under threat. Uh, we're vulnerable in this life. So what's a Christian supposed to do? And he just says, you endure, you, you go through this. I'm not facing the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of my city, like the disciples were, but the confidence that they were to have was still that Jesus knew what was coming and he was going to, to be with them all through that. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're on two different questions though. You had asked the question, what are some lessons that we can learn from it? And that's, that's answers to that question. Very good. I had asked the question, what about the premillennialist argument that this can't be the Roman destruction of the temple because this says that these things are going to happen after the gospel has been preached to all nations. Hmm. And so, uh, Would Acts 1 or 2 help with that some? Uh, you see... There's people Jews. from all nations there. Yeah, uh, Jews coming to Jerusalem, uh, hearing about this. Colossians one also comes to mind. Yeah, um, I don't. I, I struggle with this a little bit because uh, certainly, you know, what about South America? What about China? But the idea is still that the gospel in Paul's day had gone out to nations beyond just the Jews in Jerusalem. Well, uh, in Colossians is almost the same. In right, it's one twenty three. If so be that you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and have not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was, past tense, preached in all creation under heaven. Now, either way you want to take that language, if you want to take it as not meaning every single person has already heard it in every single island and, and continent, if you want to take it that it's spread throughout the known world of that area, or if you want to take it literally, if if you if you take Colossians literally, then you can make Matthew Mark 13 literal. If you take Colossians to mean it has spread through the world and especially the known world, then you take Matthew 24 that same way. Because the language is there both both times um and, and and of course you see even the enemies of christ saying you know they're they're turning the world upside down mm -hmm. that's back around you know 49 50 a.d uh where, where there's about right right about 50 a.d that they're saying that colossians is written maybe say 62 63 a.d uh and the destruction of jerusalem is until 70. So if the enemies are saying they've turned the world upside down in 50, if Paul's writing in Colossians 1, the gospel was preached in all creation under heaven, then I don't think you can make a big argument from Mark 13 and say that, that it couldn't have. Go ahead. Just, just a side point um, about how that happened. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I get overwhelmed sometimes as I have a conversation with some other 
um, preachers recently about the need to take the gospel to all the world. And I, I get overwhelmed sometimes thinking about, wow, there, there, there are people in, um, in Jordan who need to hear the gospel. There are people in India who need to hear the gospel, people in China who need to hear the gospel. And it just, who's gonna go? And, and, and we need to go. Um, but the way the gospel spread in the first century was just word of mouth. You know, it's, it, we talk about grassroots movements. Yeah, the gospel is that, uh, and it just spread. How little emphasis is placed on evangelism in the New Testament, the way we think about evangelism. Paul didn't have to tell Christians to make sure you tell your neighbors about the gospel. You know, he didn't make sure you talk to your family about Jesus being Lord. They just did it. And, and that is a really effective way. Um, we wonder, am I having any effect, any influence? Just talking to the three people you know who need to hear the gospel will we'll start a spread. It will, it will start the advancement of the kingdom. Um, kind of a side point on this. I, just, I think it's impressive how quickly Christianity spread in the first century without the use of major programs or um, institutions that were supposed to organize and oh, yeah. get all this out. Uh, it was just one person talking to another person about Jesus. And I, I, some of the man, uh, that'd be a really interesting thing to talk about sometime. It's just how unproductive sometimes bureaucratized, I'm trying to make a verb out of bureaucracy, um, Christianity can become when you try to do it like that. It's really yep. interesting topic. Uh, but it involved people, you know, you look at, uh, like, uh, uh, the COVID epidemic, you know, it starts over there in Wuhan, it spreads, it spreads, it spreads. Well, we're supposed to be the light and salt of the earth that have a leavening, a good leavening effect and mm -hmm. let spread and spread and spread. Now, some of that is just, uh, like first Peter three. Wives, if, if your husband won't listen to the word, be setting a good example. Maybe he won't be won by the word, but he'd be won by your example. There's one. Uh, some of it is people like Paul, who was told by the Holy Spirit in exhorting you and Barnabas, go. And they started going in at Romans 15. Paul said, I made it my aim to take the gospel where it wasn't already heard. And so part of it evangelists like paul just getting out and doing the work and part of it is like in acts 8 when it said the great persecution arose and the disciples whenever we're preaching the word i've compared it to blowing a dandelion that's gone to sea you know they want to get rid of it let's stomp this out <laughs> you just uh, made it worse <laughs> In that case, it wasn't the apostles. It said the apostles were at Jerusalem, but disciples went everywhere. Yeah. yeah. And it is interesting. Uh, in Mark 13, uh, he talks about the, the elect, um, tribulation over the whole world. Um, in verse 20, he talks about you know, the elect shortening the days of the tribulation. He has plans even from this moment, AD 70, the gospel is going to continue to spread, continue to advance, partly because of the persecution here. So we see it in Acts 8. We'll see it here in AD 70. Let's jump into verse 14 here because I'm looking at the clock and somebody named Scott has been talking too much and we're <laughs> schedule. Uh, so I'm going to read uh, 14 
through uh, 23. Let's comment quickly on it and then do the next section, next section. Yes, do you see the abomination of desolation standing where you ought not? Let him that reads understand. Let them that are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let them that is on the house stop. Don't go down nor enter in or take anything out of the house. Let the hand that's in the field not return back and take his clothes. Uh, continues with those kind of warnings. And then it says there's going to be terrible tribulation. And if anybody says, yo, here's the price of that, don't believe it. Um, and then in verse 24, in those days after, well, no, let's start with 23. Uh, so any comments on the abomination of desolation there and get out of Jerusalem? Is that a reference back to Daniel? Uh, not that Daniel was talking about this event. Instead, he's talking about another event, Antiochus Epiphanes, who came in and desecrated the temple. But a similar kind of thing is going to happen in AD 70 with Titus. He's going to uh, desecrate the temple in a similar way. And, and there's more than one reference in Daniel to the abomination that makes desolate. There's another one back in chapter 9 when it talks about the 77s. And after the 69th, 7, the Messiah will be cut off. Mm -hmm. The prince will come and destroy the sanctuary. That sure looks like destruction of Jerusalem to me. And there it refers to this. And then later you have uh, another one. Um, but the uh, I I'll describe briefly what I think this may be. So abomination, one of the things that was abominable was idolatry. Desolation, that's destruction. The Jews were willing to die to keep the Roman ensign barriers, which were idolatrous, from coming in there. There, If you look in Josephus, there's an occasion where Pilate's, the, the Roman army is going to be there at Jerusalem, and they're going to have all these things and everything, and the Jewish leaders are going into Pilate saying, we cannot, it's, we cannot have these in our city. And he, they keep coming and complaining, and he's tired of it, so he told his men to be ready and have their swords ready. And when he gives the signal, whip them out. And so here comes the leaders again. They say, we cannot have this. And he gives a signal, guys pull out the swords. And it said, they just said, go ahead and chop off our heads because we would die before we would let this be in our city. So Pilate backs down and he sends the Roman army to Caesarea instead of Jerusalem. That's how abominable this idolatrous image was. Now, when the in 66, when the, the war started up in Galilee, the Romans conquered some place up there first before they came down to Jerusalem. When they started marching on Jerusalem, if you're in Jerusalem and you see that abomination of desolation, like in the old move, Roman movies, if you've ever seen those, when you when you see that abomination of desolation, run. Don't right. don't go down in the house and say, uh, you know, call you hall, let's pass. No. Don't even stop and get your stuff. Run. Get to the mountains as quick as possible because they, as Luke said, Jesus said they're going to surround you in on every side. And they did. And they starved the people. I mean, people were just like starving. And then, of course, they got killed and taken captive. Go ahead. And, and verse 17 here, if this is end of the world, uh, it, why worry about the pregnant women? You know, what what need is a pregnant woman going to have for concern for her children if it's the end of the world? And instead, this is 
describing, like you said, extreme siege situations where there's going to be starvation, there's going to be famine, there's going to be all kinds of disease and trouble because of the armies coming through. So this fits the kind of destruction you'd see when the Romans come in 8070. And it doesn't say what to do in Ohio or Pennsylvania. So if you're in Judea, when you see that. <laughs> That's right. But the Right. And it says, let's do this real quick. In verse 24, in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, moon won't give her light, stars fall from heaven, and, and the sun amount coming in the clouds, and they're gathering like, man, that sure sounds like the, the second coming and the day of judgment and the end of the world and everything. But it's already been pointed out that in verse 30, he says, all this is going to happen in this generation. So up mm -hmm. to verse 30, it's debatable about after verse 31 or not, but up to verse 30, we're locked in time-wise here. And real quickly, let's just mention this. This is not the first time this kind of language was used to describe the fall right. of a nation in a capital. Right. And so it's used of pagan capitals in the Old Testament, how much more of Jerusalem. So in Isaiah 13, um, somebody read verse 10 for us from Isaiah 13, and let's see if this sounds like the end of the world. I'll pick up in, uh, in verse 9 here, Isaiah 13, verse 9. Behold, the day the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. All right. And then uh, I will punish the world for its evil. And then it says in verse 13, I will make the heavens tremble. The earth will be shaken out of its place. That sounds like the end of the world. Right. What's the context of Isaiah 13? Verse, Verse one, he's talking about Babylon. <laughs> so. And then it says, uh, I'm going to bring the Medes in right. and defeat them. So it's not the end of the world for the Medes. It's the end of the world for, so here's a little bit of language we use today that's second cousin many times removed from apocalyptic language. Uh, stock market crashes, president gets assassinated. We say it was a dark day in Washington, or it's a dark day on Wall Street, black, mm -hmm. whatever. If there's no big news on, nothing earth shaking. We're not talking literal. We're meaning, but you know what? When, if this country falls, the lights go out for the United States. Mm-hmm. It's earth-shaking for the United States. It's the end for the United States. For whatever country conquers it, it's not the end for them. It's the end for us. That was the end for Babylon. This is the end for Jerusalem. So the, the instruction back in Mark 13, verse 14, let the reader understand. Jesus assumed he's talking to people who were familiar with this kind of language, and they would pick up on these clues like, oh, son of man coming in the clouds. That sounds like Isaiah 19 or... Uh, the stars falling from heaven. That sounds like Isaiah 13. So they would know, oh, this is not the end of the world, but this is the end of the world for that nation, for that kingdom. This is judgment language. Unless some people believe that this may be an editorial comment. It appears both in Matthew and Mark, but when it's being written down. Right, right. 
let the reader understand because <laughs> is describing it. Um, he, he's speaking orally, but one way or the other, pay, pay attention. And then finally, verse 28, from the fig tree, learn a parable. When her branches now become tender and puts forth leaves, you know the summer is nigh. Even see when you see all these things, know that he is not even at the doors. Now in First Thessalonians, and I think maybe in maybe the latter half of Matthew 24, if that's, that's talking about the final coming of Jesus, and in Second Peter, where the world will be destroyed, it said it's going to come like a thief in the night. Thief in the night comes differently than the fig tree, you know. You, you, you're not standing in your yard in the middle of winter and all of a sudden, and you, you got this. It happens a little gradually. You can see it coming. So he said, you'll, then you'll know he's coming. And he says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things be accomplished. Yeah, if he concludes all this in 32 through 37, like you said, it, it it, this may be talking about more than just the destruction of Jerusalem here. He talks about a day and hour that no one knows, not even the angels, nor the son, but only the father. Yeah, it kind and of they, on how you read verse 31. If you read 31 this way, it verse 30, this generation won't pass away till all these things be accomplished. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words won't pass away. But of that day and hour, mm -hmm. No, no one. So it, it could be that he's switching. Could be a shift. About. And, and Jesus does that, you know, again, like the temple we read in John 2. You know, he's talking about the literal temple, and then he's talking about his body. So Jesus would shift some. But here in Mark 13, to kind of conclude our discussion concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. You do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home, puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, the evening or at midnight, when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. And so Jesus here uh, concludes this, I think, troubling discussion with uh, with words of warning, uh, we need to be on guard. His disciples need to be on guard for what was coming to them, and so to us. I, I don't know when my time is coming. It, it'll come, and so I need to live like it'll be my last day today. So, so take warning. Uh, any other thoughts through Mark thirteen before we wrap up our discussion from today? Uh, some people might have some moral questions about about God's decision to destroy. Uh, Jerusalem and, and the temple. Um, why would God do that to his people? Uh, is this in line with the God that we see in the Old Testament? Um, would you have any answers to those kinds of questions? That's exactly what God said in the Old Testament, because in the blessings and curses uh, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, uh, speaking in a national way, uh, for instance, sometimes in the days of Joshua, when people were doing well, there was a sinner like Achan. Uh, sometimes in the wicked days of captivity, you had people like Ezekiel or Daniel, but the blessings and cursing said to the nation, if you follow my commandments and keep them, I'm going to send the rain. I'm going to protect your borders. If you don't, I'm going to bring enemies and they're going to destroy your sanctuaries and they're going to haul you away captive. Yeah. 
Yeah, we see that a faithful God keeps his promises for good and for evil. You know, it, it, we would bring God's character into question if he saw evil and didn't judge it. Uh, so a God of love is, is a God who hates evil. Um, so. Do you think that even in this chapter of, of judgment that we can see the grace of God still shining through? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, he refers to the elect and he warns them and he says, you know, uh, he, he's, he's warning them. And, and that's that was the job given to Ezekiel too, warn them. It's our job to listen to warnings. And the fact is, the Bible teaches accountability. There's, there's also grace on top of accountability, because if we have accountability without grace, we've all blown it a long time ago. But grace is offered, but grace is not given where there's not an acceptance of accountability. And that's you can see that in 2 Peter 3, talking about the end, where it says, you know, uh, the Lord... A thousand years is a day and a day that's a thousand years with the Lord. He's long suffering, hoping that we will repent. Okay. There's the accountability. But sooner or later, we'll come like a thief in the night. So see how you ought to be living and, and come to the Lord and the Savior. Really helpful discussion today, man. Thanks so much. Uh, I think this concludes our, our discussion for today. Uh, if you're tuning in, thanks so much. And if you found this study helpful, we would encourage you to share it with other people. It's only going to enrich our discussion. We'd love to take comments and questions. Um, and if you have requests for future studies and discussions, you can visit our website, BibleQuest.tv. Thanks for joining in. Uh, God be with you. And Lord willing, we'll see you next week. All right.